It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Teresa and I'm Colleen. We're two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. Hello and welcome to episode 128 of Tangential Inspiration. Today, Teresa will be talking about hearing impaired mountain climbers with the goal to climb to Everest. Wow. Also, she will be talking about inspiring veterans from Germany and Oregon. Mm -hmm. Excited about that. I will also be talking about another set of heroes in Bletchley Circle, which was in Britain. Oh, okay. And assisted in bringing World War II to a quicker close. Maybe we need to start with yours. That sounds like I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I know I wouldn't make a good mountain climber, for sure. I like to hike. Did you say you would make a good mountain climber? Would not. Capital Mm -hmm. (laughs) N-O-T. Would not. I like hiking too. No, but if have you ever seen the movie Everest? It's no. just called Everest. No, it will deter you. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Yes. I'm always cold, so yeah, I'm definitely are. not going to yeah. be into that. And second, I know there are those crevasses yes. up there that are sometimes hidden under the snow. Right. So I really would not like to be part mm-hmm. of it. I know my husband's climbed Mount Hood, and one of the sisters when he was in Boy Scouts, which was a few years ago. My dad has climbed a bunch of those. Mount oh, Hood, the uh-huh. sisters. He was really into wow. that for a while. That's yes. cool. Yes. But those aren't really mountain climbing. I mean, those the Mount Hood and sisters aren't really mountain climbing mountains. They're more like steep hikes for people oh, that climb. Okay. For climbers. I don't think me or my husband would enjoy climbing serious mountains. We love nature. We love hiking. We yes. love finding incredible views. But we wouldn't like climbing a serious mountain like Denali. In Alaska, which used to be known as Mount McKinley. But then again, we're not Shana Unger and Scott Lehman. This couple is serious about mountain climbing. In June of 2021, they planned out their climb for Denali, which I love that name right there. Yes. The highest peak in North America, towering in at 20,310 feet tall. It's the third most prominent mountain peak and the third most isolated peak in the world. Those two things right there would make that... (laughs) Deterred. Yes, exactly. Consider it deterred. It's off the list. Yes. More than this is the third thing. Also, anything I have to, like, stay over so that I can acclimate, wear oxygen Mm -hmm. masks. I don't think I'm really into that. Out, out. (laughs) And then more than 120 climbers have died making this climb. Wow. Or attempting it. So, yeah, no. But these two experienced climbers have had to haul food and gear on sleds to even get to the mountain. They had to haul two items that most climbers don't. Pen and paper. Right. Just in case they ran into other climbers, they needed to communicate with. Because both Shana and Scott were born deaf and communicate through ASL. Okay. American Sign Language. Right. We've talked about that before. Right. So cold weather gear makes it obviously more difficult, especially if you're having to hold equipment while wearing heavy gloves. But these two have been adventuring together for years, doing their first backpacking trip together in 2012. By the time they reached the peak of Denali, they were already planning on moving on to their next challenge, Mount Everest. I was just going to say, let me guess. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. But um, so there are some unique challenges to being a deaf mountain climber. First, when Scott wanted to take up the sport, he couldn't find anyone to help teach him how to climb. Oh. Which is so sad. There weren't 
many climbers who knew ASL. Right. So Scott began teaching himself by reading books and just like all the kids now watching videos on YouTube. Right. He'd even show up at the mountain and just ask climbers questions by writing them on notepads. After he was training for a while, Shayna started training with him, and soon they both had mountain climbing in their blood. I can also understand, though, they do communicate, you know, with the belaying and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's how you communicate is to be able to yell and hear. So I can even understand somebody's hesitancy to think, how am I even going to do do this? How am I going to teach this person? I think they have special tugs. They do, but, but you have other climbers that are not, right? you know, don't speak that way. Right, right. Like you said, a challenge for them is they can't communicate. They can't yell out commands or warnings like other climbers, so they have to rely on hand signals and a series of rope tugs. In poor weather conditions like a whiteout or heavy fog, their ability to communicate is hampered, and there's a real possibility of losing each other as they cannot just call out for help. Right. Talk about scary. Yes. But these additional complications have not prevented Shana and Scott, who both work at the Maryland School for Deaf, from climbing some of the most challenging mountains in the world. So she's a counselor at the school, and he teaches math. Okay. They've climbed Kilimanjaro in Africa, the French Alps, which I've seen on Lucy. Oh, so I'm sure. <laughs> Lucy can do that. That might be what I've I stayed in the Alps before. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I remember my mom's from Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, they're beautiful. And mountains in Mexico and South America, they are currently, like I said, training for Everest six days a week. Wow. They're hoping to do the climb sometime in May and are working on how to communicate with the Sherpas, who they obviously don't know. Sure. They see this as their biggest challenge and know it will be physically and mentally difficult. I mean, this hike, they use, I don't even want to call it a hike, the climb, they use frozen bodies as trail markers. Yes, they do. On their way up. Mm -hmm. So their bucket list is to finish the seven summits, which are... Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, which has been done. Mount Elbrus in Russia. Denali in Alaska, that's checked off. Right. Aconcagua in Argentina. Vision Massif in Antarctica. Another one I can safely, oh, all of these I can safely say. I don't right. need to do the seven summits. Right. Pankangia in Indonesia. And, of course, the biggest of them all, Mount Everest. These are the highest mountains on each continent. Okay. Which I thought was interesting. Right. They've been sharing their climbs. And training on Instagram and TikTok, hoping to inspire the 30 million Americans with hearing loss and other hearing-impaired people around the world. Shayna says, we want to be role models and show our community, especially kids, that climbing or even just being in the outdoors isn't something that only hearing people can do. I just think it's great Great. that they're setting an example and doing what they love. Yes. The article was saying, do you think that he's going to... Proposed to her at the top of it. Oh, that was like, no, because we haven't done the seven summits yet. (laughs) But you can find them on TikTok and Instagram under the name at Scott and Shayna or at scottshayna.com. So at Scott and Shayna is S C O T T A N D S H A Y N A or at scottshayna.com. Scott S C O T T S H A Y N A.com. So, I read this book by Bob Welch called Saving My Enemy. Hmm. Weirdly, I found it because he's the same guy who wrote 52 Lessons from It's a Wonderful Life. Oh. I know. So, I read that book, you know, last Christmas time. Okay. I, was, I love It's a Wonderful Life. I do, That's too. My favorite Christmas movie. So, I had done an episode on that. And Bob Welch is an Oregonian. Oh. Teaches um, some classes down at, um, or maybe not anymore, but at one point at 
at Yovo. Okay. So the book is about two people who had every reason to hate each other. Two men who had fought in World War II on opposing sides. Both very different individuals, but both of them struggled, you know, their whole lives following right. the war with post-traumatic stress disorder and survivor's guilt. Wow. Which okay. I didn't really think about until this. Yes. Especially if you've lost friends. Yeah. And they ones. lost a lot of them. Yeah. Yep. Both of these guys did. Don Malarkey grew up in Astoria. So that's out on our beach in Oregon and had kind of a huck. Finn-esque childhood. He didn't so much cause trouble, but, you know, he and his brothers were very mischievous. Mm -hmm. His childhood was far from perfect. I mean, he grew up during the Great Depression. So his father lost his insurance company in 1938, and then they lost their home. Don would have to go live with his grandma in Warrenton, which is another town. It is. It's a little suburb, I'd say, of Astoria. Yeah. So he had to grow up rather quickly instead of continuing to explore the Nahalem River. He was a busy boy with school and a job. He didn't get to play basketball anymore because Astoria was six miles away. He worked evenings at the Liberty Grill and would read the paper on his breaks, wondering just what was going on in Europe. I think a lot of people then, too, like these kids worked because Mm -hmm. they needed to help their families. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that was really sad about this is that, so his dad, he's living with his grandma, his dad had come into the restaurant and he was just saying, he said something about how embarrassed, you know, ashamed of his boy. Couldn't stand that guy. And Don heard him. And so that's awful. Just, yeah, this, this poor guy started off with a, a rough go with this relationship with his dad. And I don't think it got any better, but he was reading the paper and, you know, he'd read about these synagogues being torched and women being raped, windows shattered all by the Nazi soldiers in the name of Germany. His knowledge impressed his teachers at school, as few of the kids knew what was going on in, in Europe. War was looking more and more imminent, and Don's grandma, who I said... I he lived, lived with yeah, her. Just didn't want to discuss it. She had lost two of her sons in World oh War One. So one of Don's uncles had been killed in France by the Germans in 1918, and the other had been gassed in the Argonne Forest, leaving his lungs singed. So he died when Don was just five years old in 1926, and he was only 31. So this poor mom had lost two of her sons and just didn't want to talk war. Right. I don't blame her. I don't either. Fritz didn't have the same childhood. He grew up in Germany post-World War I, and that also would have been rough. Yes. For sure. Yes. Fritz worked hard in school and even worked to learn the violin. He was quiet, well-behaved, and easygoing. A relative would say that if he were a forest animal... Fritz would be a koala bear. <laughs> How do you even pick that? That sounds very- Fritz was seven during the 1932 Olympics, and it was held in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I guess Germany only beat one of the 10 nations mm. competing. The U.S. had 41 gold medals, and Germany had three. You can imagine how mad Hitler was. Yes. And he plotted to turn his attention to the German youth. So he preached about making Germany great again. Every year on Hitler's birthday, a new round of these Hitler youths would be sworn in. So on April 20th, 1935, Fritz was sworn in to the junior Hitler youth. They'd have weekly meetings professing their dedication and loyalty to their Fuhrer. 
they had been taught that everyone except for Germans were the enemy. It was sad to me because, you know, they the kids would join the SA stormtroopers for book burning. And in 1941, Disney movies were banned. I had my kids look wow. up which ones they were. It was like um, Pinocchio. They had Dumbo was actually came out in 1940. I mean, these are Snow White. Very right. decent movies. But, right. Yeah. Interesting. They were banned in 1941 in Germany. So while Fritz was in support of this whole Hitler thing. His parents very much did not support him. In fact, his dad really tried to talk him out of it, but Fritz just thought it was their way to gain power again. Right. His parents would help provide food to a Jewish friend at the time, and Fritz wanted to turn them in because that's what they were told to do. Yes. So these kids had been brainwashed and convinced to turn in anyone that wasn't loyal to Hitler. Fritz knew of an eight-year-old girl who had turned her parents in... And he felt really guilty for not reporting his parents. I'm surprised he didn't, but impressed all at the same time. He'd get angry with his father. They'd have these fights. And his father would be speaking of the evils of Hitler. But Fritz wasn't angry enough to turn them in. Right. You know, like we talked about before, teenagers, I'm sure that added to the whole thing, too. Right. When Fritz was in the Hitler Youth, he helped in Austria with a camp for German kids who had been evacuated. Those above him loved his eagerness. His commitment to the cause. He would have been drafted earlier, but his father wouldn't allow it. So he had to wait until he was 18. And they loved, you know, his Aryan blood. He was tall, strong, and blonde. He ended up traveling all over for projects, pouring cement, and things that ended up frustrating him because he didn't feel like he was a soldier. He was doing, you know, this menial work compared to fighting the war. One time he had his boots stolen, and because it took him a couple of hours to report it, he was actually arrested. And put in jail for a few days. <laughs> but it probably was one of the things that kept him alive because his team was actually shipped out to fight Romania and few of them ended up surviving that battle. Speaking of few surviving, when Don Malarkey, our Astorian guy, yes. uh, parachuted into France, so many of his fellow paratroopers from the 101st Division perished. Even though, you know, he had trained for two years for this moment, they're sitting there, any mistake that you make, yes, you're dead. It just, it's impossible to fully prepare for that whole thing. The sights, the smells. My um, grandfather was behind enemy lines. Yeah. I haven't, I need to do some more research mm-hmm. on him, but he's never, he wouldn't talk about it. Yeah. And neither did these guys. Right. Until and later. I think yeah. there's a, yeah. There's, there's a just, reason. There's it's, a reason. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Sometimes shoots would get stuck in trees and the Germans would use those soldiers as target practice and kind of to give a warning for soldiers that were coming in after Mm -hmm. them, this is what's going to happen. The number of friends that Dawn would lose in the attack would, you know, make anyone have post-traumatic stress disorder. His best friend, Skip, was on that list. These guys had trained together for like two years. Skip was an East Coast guy. Obviously, Dawn was a West West Coast Coast. guy. (laughs) Yep. They both had serious girlfriends, although Skip was a little more serious about his. He was, they were planning most likely to get married after the war. And not only losing these friends, these fellow soldiers, but the sights and the smells Mm -hmm. were just unbearable. I think I've seen one true war movie besides Wonder Woman. I mean, there's that scene in Wonder Woman where we kind (laughs) of have some more, but that doesn't really count. No. I recently watched All is Quiet on the Western Front, Mm. and it was just amazing. Parts of it I couldn't watch because it's just too realistic. I think the beginning of Saving Private Ryan Mm -hmm. is Normandy. Mm. and I found that really hard yeah. to watch. Yeah. It was just, I know it's supposed to be very real, realistic, yeah. but just, it was The it was, bravery it was scary. of those kids. Yep. They were kids. Yep. Yeah. 
I know. But seeing that movie just made me appreciate our war veterans even more. I couldn't watch some of the sites on the screen. And so if I can't even watch it, I can't even imagine what they endured. Women, children, these bodies just charred. All the death and destruction. And Bob Welch wrote of the smells, you know, rotting animals. You, mm-hmm. you don't think about it, kind of like we were talking earlier about what you don't think about just all the stuff related to war because we it's so far, it's it so is. foreign to us. It is. Um, these two men, very different, but fighting in the same war, actually were fighting in the same area. They were about five miles apart. Wow. Which, what are the odds of that? Right. I don't think Fritz actually killed anyone. In fact, I know that in combat. But he most certainly aided in the killing, setting towns on fire, and he definitely witnessed the destruction the Germans were causing, and not just to their opposing soldiers. Malarkey did kill his enemies, but the book only spoke of one that would haunt him for the rest of his life. He was in this barn, and this German soldier was trying to kill him, so it was basically kill or be killed. Yes. I mean, there was no choice here. Yep. But after all was said and done, he went and he rolled this guy over and and he's like he couldn't be more than 18 he grabs his papers and he was 16 years old yep and babies yeah yeah i don't know why that surprised me because fritz ended up being the most senior in his division at 19 i mean he had only been in combat for like seven months and yet he was the most senior in his division at 19 like i said hitler used the youth and fritz was realizing Mm -hmm. that his dad had been right Mm-hmm. Fritz would hear that Hitler was talking all about Germany's power and the successes that they were having. And Fritz saw was, you know, the reality of what was happening on the battlefront. Yes. It was becoming clear to him that they were not only losing the war, but they had been duped to fight for a man who was too cowardly to do the same. Yep. I mean, this poor young man. After the war, these guys both had successful lives. They got married, had kids, moved on the best that they could. Both of them with guilt and remorse. Malarkey just kept seeing that 16-year-old boy that he killed. And Fritz was disgusted that he had bought into the whole Nazi propaganda. Malarkey tried to drink the memories away, and Fritz just closed up. Also, for two years post-war, Fritz was a prisoner of war. Oh, wow. And they were, you know, they were doing all sorts of work. And these French women would see them starving and would bring them loaves of bread. Aww. And when he would talk about this later in his life, he would get misty. You know, his, his, he'd get teary because mm-hmm. these were German soldiers that were trying to kill them. And right. these women were so forgiving. Right. So fast forward six and decades. And probably realizing these are just kids. Yeah. They probably yeah. really realized Especially, that. These are women. So they probably, mm-hmm. you know, probably they were like, these could have been. And, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So fast forward six decades, there had been a show on HBO called Band of Brothers, mm-hmm. which I haven't seen. Have you watched any of that? You know, I think I have, but it was years ago. Yeah, yeah it was like, what, 2001 or something. Probably. Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. I was in the haze of a two-year-old at that point, <laughs> yeah. so... But I, hey, I do think I do think I watched yeah. it. So, but I heard it. I remember it being excellent. Yeah, because of that show, Malarkey became quite the celebrity. I mean, it was in part, you know, he was one of the guys on there. He'd travel to schools and share his experiences, and he'd make other appearances. He became so much a celebrity that one time he was at a Walmart and he <laughs> hit someone's car and oh, this, no. you know, kid gets out and the boy recognizes him from a school visit and his mom <laughs> said it was all right because it was Don Malarkey. So the boy was so excited to see him and the mom saw, you know, his screaming eagle jacket 
And he was excited to be hit by the Don Malarkey, the big war hero. (laughs) So Fritz was the contrast, completely opposite. He was ashamed and never wanted to speak about it. So they had this kind of reunion. They were in this bar, the Easy Company. These guys from the 101st Division had a reunion of sorts. And so they had invited Fritz. Fritz didn't want to go, but I think his kids talked him into it. And when he was there, some of the guys were like, good thing that we're meeting you now. And the very reason he didn't want to go pretty much happened. And I guess Malarkey was the one that kind of broke the the ice and bought him a beer and kind of welcomed him into the fold. So I think the two men only met like three times. But they exchanged all sorts of letters. Their families met and actually became friends, which is fun and all. But the most amazing part is that these two men, who had once been enemies, obviously, in combat and actually wanted to kill the other side. I also think we need to understand that a lot of times some of these people became Nazis to save their lives. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I know a friend's grandpa who's passed on Mm -hmm. now, but never really believed in it. But almost felt like he had to oh, to absolutely. survive, yeah, and to protect his well, family because he would have, yes. you know, perished. And they I think we need to yeah. remember that yeah. too. Absolutely, you know, just absolutely. survival. So I'll back up for just a second. These paratroopers were meeting for a, a reunion okay. over in France, and so Fritz had been invited. He didn't want to go, obviously, because. It didn't seem appropriate to him. I would think it was somewhat terrifying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but his kids, his kids talked him into it. And like I said, when he went there, this exact stuff that he thought was going to happen happened. And that Don bought him a beer and kind of introduced him to the rest of the the group. There were some people during some of these exchanges that when they knew a German was going to be there, mm-hmm. they pulled out. They, these veterans didn't well, want to have anything to do with... Um, I wonder if it was just too painful for them. Maybe not personal, but just painful. Well, and I think back in that time, they they really tried to hate on the other... Demonized. They were, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that carried on because they were feeling guilty about killing all these... You know, they'd killed a lot of people. Yep. So yep. I think it was a coping mechanism for That's sure. That's what I mean. Not, not really personal to that right. person, right. but just painful. Yeah, absolutely. Painful. Too close to home. Exactly. So for these two men, it was like they were therapists for each other, reminding each other that they didn't choose the war. They had no choice but to fight for their countries. It was kill or be killed. Yes. So this whole book goes back and forth with same timeline with them, but it talks about Fritz and then it talks about Dawn and just kind of their different experiences. Fritz's guilt over what his country caused consumed him. I mean, the guilt yeah. was so bad. He didn't, like I said, he didn't want to attend a memorial for D-Day with Malarkey and the other fallen soldiers. He did, he kind of stepped back and let them go to the graves on their own because he knew he wasn't a part of that. But they, they all were just victims in this war True. that they hadn't picked, they hadn't True. chosen. Right. That's kind of what started to help them break through the pain. So these kids, these Belgian kids came when they were going out to honor the graves and they had not only german flags but they also had you know they had american um, flags and french flags and these kids wanted to honor the soldiers they had peace signs and things and smiles and um leave it to sweet children i know exactly (laughs) so their warm hearts showed fritz that they didn't hate him and it kind of you know similar to the french women that had given him bread bread to eat yeah a lesson in forgiveness for sure It was Fritz who hated himself. Fritz who needed to forgive himself. And it was Malarkey who taught him that. Malarkey had his own guilt 
you know, he couldn't stop seeing that 16-year-old teenager. And then he said a day didn't go by that he didn't think of that blank stare after he had been shot. According to the book, the year 1946, so right after the war, saw the highest divorce rate in the United States, a number that was not exceeded until 1973. Wow. Which that came with women's lip. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) One study showed that World War II combat vets were four times as likely as non-combat vets to become heavy drinkers. And this also was a time before the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. I guess that wouldn't be diagnosed for a couple of decades. They called it something else back then. I remember, Mm -hmm. I know this is off the cuff, but I remember in Downton Abbey, and I'm trying to think Mm -hmm. of the name, but they they called it something Something else. else. Oh, I'd be so curious. They had a a name for it. Definitely wasn't Mm -hmm. PTSD, but... Well, they said that um, with the Vietnam War, that's when they started diagnosing post-traumatic stress disorder. So in the 70s? Yeah. Late 60s? So according to Welch in the book, Malarkey could take over a room. Engelbert, Fritz, was reserved. Malarkey hopped from job to job, and Engelbert worked at CMAG for 45 years. Malarkey spoke about his service around the world. Like I said, because of that Man of Brothers and his book that he did with Bob Welch, he did tours and was very outspoken. Engelbert divulged his memories with great reluctance. Politically, Don leaned way right, which is funny because, like I said, he went to U of O and his his family, they played football there, and so they were big ducks. So for you, not from Oregon, that's University (laughs) of Oregon. (laughs) And Fritz was way left. But ultimately, none of these differences mattered as much as the secret that drew them together. Deep down, they were bound by an ache of from the war that simply wouldn't go away. An ache etched in shame for Fritz and guilt for Don. It was said they were part of a generation of men who escaped the shells, but were ultimately destroyed by the war. Yes. Which I thought that was such a good way to put it. Yes. So it started with Don reminding Fritz that it wasn't his fault. And finally, Fritz, after you know decades, broke down with the tears and they just began to flow. It wasn't long before the roles were reversed and Don started crying once Aww. again, probably because of, these are tough you know yes men yes but survivor's guilt and and like i said he thought every day about that that boy and it was especially worse in december and january because it had happened like cold in right right around christmas when these men met in 2004 they were so incredibly broken and it wasn't as if they were instantly cured they were most certainly still broken but at least the healing could actually begin once they were able to accept they weren't to blame Right. Even though Don and Fritz only met three times, that was enough. The former enemies gave each other something they hadn't been able to attain in all the years after the war. Forgiveness. Welch said, found not in conquering an enemy, but in welcoming the enemy. Not in force, but in friendship. Not in annihilation, but in absolution. The guilt from the war could finally be put to rest. That was the gift they gave each other. So that was the point of this whole book. These guys, I mean, they barely knew each other, really. But they helped each other see that they needed self-forgiveness. Right. You can't put a cost on war. I can't articulate the words to describe the horrors And that's why I can't watch war movies. I I struggle too. The cost that these two men paid for their service in World War II isn't fathomable either. They might have survived the battlefront, but the demons and guilt they carried with them left them sadly damaged. Right. Their story was heart-wrenching for sure, but it gave me hope. 
which we all need. I love that those Belgian kids brought them signs. I love the French women bringing them bread. Yes. And they showered them with appreciation. I think it says something for our future generation. I love that 60 years after the war, these men could come together and honor the fallen soldiers and really mourn their loss together. Yes. The, you know, the loss of the lives, the lives that they lost in the war and the loss of the life that they missed out on. Yes. Together. Mostly I'm inspired the story of forgiveness, forgiveness from each other, but more importantly, self-forgiveness. The hardest one. Yeah. Yeah. 60 years. I mean, these guys just, it it ate him up. And like I said, Don had a drinking problem and all of his kids said that. And Fritz was super quiet and kept everything inside. Right. And I think that's what they gave each other. The ability to forgive themselves after a lifetime of trying. It just was a really, really good book. Like I said, hard to read, but it does leave you hopeful that out of something so ugly and heinous, there can be beauty in it. So tell the name of the book again and the Um, author. Saving My Enemy, How Two World War II Soldiers Fought Against Each Other and Later Forged a Friendship That Saved Their Lives. It's by Bob Welch, and he's also the best-selling co-author with Sergeant Don Malarkey, the guy, (laughs) of Easy Company Soldiers. That was the name of their the paratrooper soldiers that he did. So it's, you know, it's a shorter book. You can get through it in no time at all, but it is really very touching for sure. Forgiving isn't something you do for someone else. It's something you do for yourself. It's saying, you're not important enough to have a stranglehold on me. It's saying, you don't get to trap me in the past. I am worthy of the future. Jody Pickle. So in a previous episode on Olivia Newton-John, we talked briefly about her father that worked on the Enigma Project Mm, at Bletchley uh Circle. And I knew then that I wanted to do a deeper dive. I love history. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Me too. So I wanted to do a deeper dive into the important work at Bletchley Circle. It was truly fascinating. Because he, so. she was born in England. Correct. Then grew, okay. Yeah. In I'm following. Australia. Yeah, Australia. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Trying to go back. I really yeah. only knew about Bletchley Circle from the movie The Imitation Game. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I have seen that movie. It's been, I've watched it one time. It's yes. been a long time. It's very it's, good. It's amazing what you can learn from movies. It is. And it's with Benedict Cumberpatch, mm-hmm. who plays Alan Turig, and we mm-hmm. will talk about him in a little bit. And a BBC show, I really love BBC shows, mm-hmm. called The Bletchley Circle. Okay. And it concentrates when was that? more, when was... I don't know when it's from, mm-hmm. but it concentrated more on the women that worked in Bletchley Circle and okay. their adventures mm-hmm. because the women were so smart that it kind of branched off a little bit and they solved little crimes and stuff mm-hmm. in the area. So it, it was really good. Mm-hmm. I make it sound trite, but it was, <laughs> it, was, it was really good. I do recommend them both. So Bletchley Park was once a country home. Oh. Which I didn't really realize mm-hmm. it, of a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. And in 1938, the mansion was up for sale, and the government code and cipher school needed a safer place. So they bought this home. It was 50 miles from London, but it was close to roads and railroads. And it was refitted as a center to decode messages produced by the infamous Enigma machine. Mm-hmm. So this was a machine that Hitler used. They, they said it was devilishly complicated. And he used it to send messages, mm-hmm. and it looked like a really large typewriter, but he would use it to send messages to his generals and his friends and, and such. And the Poles had actually cracked the Enigma Code in 1931, but when the war broke out again, 
the codes actually changed every 24 hours. Oh, my gosh. Right. Oh. Yeah. So when they realized that they changed every 24 hours, it was evident that more effort had to be brought in to, yeah, to work to on it. to keep up with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so Bletchley became an assortment of mathematicians, military experts, historians, bankers, musicians, chess masters, smart That people. one makes sense, though. Because, yeah, yeah. And people who did the Times Sunday crossword in ink. Yeah. Yeah. I loved Fair. that. <laughs> in ink. In ink. <laughs> it would not be me. Huts started springing up on the grounds where code breakers worked. It was sweltering in the summer, freezing in the winter in a haze of cigarette smoke, right? Because everybody <laughs> oh, yes, smoked at the then. time. Yeah. Everybody smoked yeah. indoors. So chief among the code breakers was mathematician and cryptographer Alan Turing. That's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so is Benedict Cumberbatch, the guy that played him, right? I just remember being like, wow. He invented the Turing bomb. It's spelled B-O-M-B-E. So it could Hmm. be Bombi. Mm -hmm. Bomb. A device that turned the letters produced by Enigma Mm -hmm. into legible German. It had rows of wheels and dials. Do you remember seeing that? It just gives me a headache. I mean, it makes it's hard for me to comprehend. Me too. It had rows of wheels and dials and it's, it was really kind of our first computer, mm-hmm. but it's in fact an electromechanical device that carried out a systematic search to find combinations on the Enigma, mm-hmm. and there was 150 million oh my gosh. possible settings to choose from. And it changed every 24 hours. Right. Oh, man. I know. His work gave the Allies the edge they needed to win the war in Europe, and it actually led to the creation of a computer. Hmm. So... I I could go a lot more into Alan Turing. He was an amazing, smart person. Mm -hmm. He was not treated well. And so that's who Benedict Cumberbatch played. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. Yeah. In the movie. He was not treated well. And I think, I didn't go into this much, but a lot of people were suspicious Mm -hmm. of this computer. I'm putting that in quotes. Mm -hmm. Because the unknown. The unknown is scary. Yeah. And he was actually gay. Mm Mm-hmm. And back then. At a time, yeah. Right. And so I think they really kind of used all of this against him. Mm-hmm. Which is so sad because the movie, I remember him, like his whole life was not, mm-hmm. was just tragic. Right. Yeah. Queen Elizabeth actually went back and pardoned him. And I was Good. really grateful Good. for that. So I read a, a story about the women of Bletchley Park and it was so cute. This woman was 18 years old and she was fresh out of her REN. That's W-R-E-N. Women's Royal Naval Service. And then she was assigned to SDX. SD is special duties and X we can't tell you. That's what she said. (laughs) She said, you didn't get any promotions or special pay. Hours were very antisocial. They just worked like midnight Uh to 4 a.m. And once you've signed in, you can't leave. Well, you have special Mm -hmm. knowledge and Mm -hmm. all of that. Well, they all signed something called the Official Secrets Act. Mm. And they were told they were going to be breaking German codes. And it was so cute. There was a, a quick story about a couple that met at Bletchley Circle and got married. Mm-hmm. And they didn't tell each other what they did there until 1971 when oh that, gosh. that, that <laughs> when secrets act yeah. was up. Oh, wow. Good for them. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, Talk no, about I, rule I don't know if I can do that. Yeah. So uh, some things that they they learned through this code breaking was that Jews were being processed for concentration camps. They intercepted messages to the German quartermaster complaining that the army issue underpants split when the wearer <laughs> sat down. 
One received news of the Normandy landing, of which Winston Churchill said, no single operation out of the World War was so dependent on Bletchley as the Normandy landings. Indeed, without the work which was done here, there was no way the landings could have gone ahead, let alone succeeded. Mm -hmm. So I thought this was interesting that along with the couriers, there was war rooms where these messages were translated. Mm -hmm. Basically, Churchill could read Adolf Hitler's mail before Hitler did. Oh, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. It was estimated that Bletchley's work shortened the war by two years. Wow. And, you know, I can't remember, but I've seen it before. This two years equaled this many lives saved oh, or something like that. Huge so it was of, huge. Yeah. So this was darling. At the end of the war, Churchill ordered the Bombies, you know, the thing that Alan Tur Turig had made. Mm -hmm. he, he, he ordered them destroyed so they didn't fall into the wrong hands. This 18-year-old that was telling this story said... They happily attacked them with their soldiering irons. <laughs> she said, we didn't love our machines. <laughs> they just were like, we're yeah, done, done here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, recently, Bletchley Park, and I kind of want to go, is open to the public. It's oh. become a museum. Mm -hmm. There's 440 volunteers. They serve to assist the five to 600 visitors who tour daily. Visitors can purchase a yearly passport and come back as often as they like. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Takes two days to mm -hmm. view everything. Mm -hmm. The mansion contains a collection of wartime memorabilia, a reference library, and a tribute to Churchill and the Code Breakers. Oh, very cool. I know. Yeah. I know. So, and I and I would highly recommend if you are interested to go watch those shows mm -hmm. because they are really interesting and they are well done. Yeah, imitation. Um, the imitation game. Okay, would that which when did that come out? It was like six, seven years ago. I would yeah, guess okay, that. Yeah. I would guess two thousand fifteen or yeah. sixteen, but it was really well done. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was intense. Yeah. but that's probably why I've only seen it one time. That's right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Me too. You can love a person dear to you with human love, but an enemy can only be loved with divine love. Leo Tolstoy. We want to hear from you. Please email us your thoughts, story ideas, or just say hi at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com. Tell us about someone inspiring in your life and like or subscribe to our podcast. It helps us out and helps others find us. You can find more information about us at our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Follow us on Instagram at tangentialinspirationpodcast or find us on Facebook. Have a great week.